this morning, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm not sure why it's so bad this morning. This morning, uh, early church lesson six <clears throat> we are working on this morning. The Christian life and the rise of the apologist. <clears throat> and uh, this morning, we begin with a brief view, uh, just to kind of catch our bearings here. Uh, where are we? in our study of the early church. And I want to cover you, this isn't in the PowerPoint, but it's in your notes. So Judaism, paganism, and emperor worship, and then I'm just going to mention Gnosticism. We'll talk about that more next week. But uh, <clears throat> last time we talked about Judaism, where were we? What was the last serious event in the history of the Jewish people as opposed to the, the Christian church that divided from it? Yeah, the destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And so that was the last thing we really said. Now, with uh, and there's, there's, I'm just going to mention a couple high points here. But the messianic fervor that led to the destruction of the temple did not end with the destruction of the temple. It didn't end with the... Uh, chaos that ensued there, but it continued on. In Christianity, as we have noted, Christianity and Judaism continue to separate, become more distinct. Uh, during that time, there's an increasing antagonism in rabbinic, what becomes rabbinic Judaism for Christianity. There are different um, slanders, very ugly slanders about Jesus uh, and Mary that begin to take place. There are regular curses that are pronounced in the synagogues against Christ. They're like anathemas. Um, this is something we'll actually see in the Christian church. It's actually something we see in the letter, of the letter to the Galatians from the Apostle Paul. We see the Apostle Paul pronounce an anathema, a condemnation on false doctrine, on a false gospel. Well, on the other side, in Judaism, you had anathemas against the true gospel and against the Messiah. And so the division was sharp and it was severe. And there was in continued persecution, even in the midst of the turmoil that the Jews faced. They often sided with the Romans, um, or, uh, and the Romans didn't always need anybody siding with them to persecute the Christians. But Christians, because they were in a legal religion, they were not a legal religion. Judaism had a legal status in the Roman Empire. The, the Christians didn't, and so it didn't take a whole lot. Kind of like in Muslim countries right now, you may have a general peace, but it doesn't take a whole lot for someone to accuse a Christian of some kind of blasphemy that gets them in legal trouble. And those are the type of things that took place in that, in that day, in the, in the day, early second century. And uh, one of those who would rise to the top in Judaism as a messianic figure was Simon Bar Kokhba. And he would lead a revolt in about 132 AD. And he was hailed as a messianic figure, still looking for what they had hoped Jesus would be, someone who would rise and allow them to throw off the oppression of the Romans. But as in AD 70, this did not go well, and the revolt was crushed. About half a million were killed, and the city was, oh, we know it was destroyed in AD 70. The temple was destroyed, not one stone left upon another. The, the prophecies of the Lord came true, but this time, the emperor at that time, his name was Hadrian, he, he had thoroughly had enough. And so he buried the city, like literally buried it 
and plowed it under and built a Roman-style city on top. So you could no longer walk through Jerusalem and say, oh, this used to be that, or this used to be the place we did this. He completely leveled it and started over. And um, in the process, just to thoroughly complete the project, he had temples built, pagan temples built on the most sacred sites of the Jews and the Christians. And I believe it was a temple to Venus that was built on the site that was known by the Christians to be the site of the resurrection. In fact, that actually becomes a key to finding what they believe is the real tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ because they knew it was under that. And when they dug there, what did they find but a tomb um, and, and other things? And so that's why the traditional site that's been hailed by Christians as a traditional site, that's why. Now, there's still, of course, there's debate on what is the actual site of the resurrection um, and Jesus' tomb. But the reason they believe that one is there is because of the, the uh, original understanding that it had been under this pagan temple. So one of the things, again, I, I could get lost here. Uh, there was in Judaism at the time of the coming of Christ what they called a two powers doctrine. And they were the Jews of Jesus' day had come to recognize that there was another figure in the Old Testament that often appeared, the, the figure when God appeared to Abraham on his way to destroying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance. God, in a human form, spoke to Abraham. Abraham recognizes him as God. Um, and judgment is pronounced on Sodom and Gomorrah, where fire is rained down from heaven by Yahweh, but there was a Yahweh was here. Yahweh was there. There seems to be two, two people referred to as Yahweh. And they understood this. And so when Jesus steps in and claims to be the, the word, or he's understood to be the word of God, the logos of God, the wisdom of God, they had a concept for that. They recognized that in Proverbs chapter 8, for instance, the wisdom of God seemed to be a divine person. Psalm 110, other passages were... They, were, they didn't have a clear understanding, but they did have a concept um, that Jesus clearly fulfilled, as you might expect. But as Christianity hailed Jesus as the wisdom of God and uh, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, a divine, fully divine person, the Jews of that day began to reject what they had come, they had come to understand that there was there there were these two people, uh, Yahweh in heaven and the Yahweh that would often appear here uh, as the angel of the Lord or something like that, and in stories like to Samson, there's so many throughout the Old Testament. They had recognized that, but they began to reject that, of course, because that lent itself to the understanding of the gospel that the Christians preached. And so they had to distance themselves from Christianity. And so they regarded the, they come, came to regard this as heresy. And then, of course, out of that, you have what um, the, the Judaism that survived these two major destructions in Jerusalem um, would go on to become what we know as rabbinic Judaism. And, um, and so that's really all I have time to say about that. But that's the Judaism of the day. Of course, there was paganism around. And the pagans worshipped 
uh, a plurality of gods. In fact, the Roman Empire was really fine as it conquered different lands in different countries. It was fine to try to assimilate those gods into the gods that they had. And they didn't mind switching the names of the gods. And they would, you know, when uh, they conquered Greece, they had, you know, they kind of tried to mix um, the, the gods that were worshipped. And you could go into a city and worship all kinds of gods. They didn't mind adding gods. What they minded and what became a problem was a religion that said you couldn't have any other gods, an exclusive religion, one that said our god alone is God, and he will not allow us to worship any of the other gods at all. Um, another thing that would arise in uh, the Roman Empire when this happened even before the time of Christ was emperor worship. Not every emperor demanded worship, but different ones did, and this was an understanding. Uh, this was something that wasn't uncommon in the Roman Empire was for the emperors to demand worship. This was often seen as a civic, as was always seen as a civic duty. This wasn't something that you could refrain from doing without insulting, in a sense, without being unpatriotic to Rome. You had to show your loyalty to Rome and your solidarity with the people of Rome and with the Roman Empire by proclaiming that Caesar was Lord. And this was one of the tools that the emperors would use to try to keep a bond among the people and see who was loyal and who was not. Um, during the pagan, and uh, this time in, in Rome when paganism and emperor worship thrived, um, there was, among philosophers like Plato and others, a concept of the logos or divine reason. And this was something that the philosophers, like Plato, were seeking to find and to understand. Um, and they talked about the idea of the logos or the divine reason of God. Um, and we'll come back to why that's important a little bit later. And then uh, something that would come in from kind of where we are into the days ahead that would become very important, uh, a, a strong danger, a strong opponent to true Christianity was Gnosticism, and I'll save our discussion of that for later. So that's kind of the pagan world. Those are the dangers that the church faced. Those are the false uh, teachings and where things were with Judaism. But what I would like to spend a lot of our time today covering is what was life like for the Christians? Like, what did the early Christians do? How did they worship? I don't know about you, but I find this one of the most not important to me. It's, it's uh, interesting to me to see what was Christianity like in those early days because I want to compare where I am to that. That doesn't mean they were perfect. It doesn't mean that every teacher of their day got everything right. You can see some, some teachers kind of lean one way and some the other. They're still working through uh, a lot of things in these early days. Remember, we've talked about the fact that this is an infant church. It's developing. It's growing. The seed has been planted and it is growing. But it is fascinating and I think very helpful for us to compare ourselves uh, to the early Christians to see what they did. And uh, it's also very inspiring. So the first thing I want to do is I want to take a look from the outside. What did those outside the church come to understand about them? 
about, about the Christians? What did they say about the Christians? Now, a lot of bad things were said about the Christians. They accused them of all kinds of terrible things, fornication, adultery, um, and you know, cannibalism, all kinds of things were attributed to the Christians of, the, uh, of that day, of the early second century. They, they weren't understood. Um, they, they knew what Judaism was. They weren't sure what this offshoot of Judaism was. They, they weren't sure what Christianity really was. And they were um, outcast, of course. They had been blamed for the fire in Rome. And so <clears throat> there's just a lot of misunderstanding, uh, which is going to lead to uh, some men that rise to speak to these, uh, to these misunderstandings. But <clears throat> there's an interesting letter, the epistle, uh, Pliny's epistle to Trajan, he, uh, governor of Bithynia, writes to the emperor in Rome because he's having trouble with these Christians. He knows that Christianity is not legal, but he's not quite sure what to do with them. He doesn't actually really know what they believe, and he's really trying to figure it out. <clears throat> and he doesn't want to punish them necessarily unjustly, and he knows a lot of people hate them, and they're accused of all these different things, and he's really just trying, he tries very hard to get to the bottom of what is it these Christians really do? What is it these Christians really believe? And so he actually begins uh, persecuting them and uh, telling them to deny Christ. Some do, but he, that's not incredibly satisfying to him because he knows that those who are truly Christians, he says, really true Christians can't do this. So he says, if true Christians... You know, if someone denies Christ, they're not really Christians, so I, I let them go. Uh, but he found some that, that wouldn't. And he was finally able to extract from some of these that he's persecuting and torturing what it is that they believe. And this is um, this is what he says. He says uh, that they were, this is what he discovered. They were wont on a stated day to meet together before it was light. It's pretty pretty early in the morning, and to sing a hymn to Christ as to a God, alternately, and to oblige themselves by a sacrament or an oath not to do anything that was ill, but that they would commit no theft or pilfering or adultery, that they would not break their promises or deny what had been deposited with them when it was required back again. After which, it was their custom to depart and to meet again at a common but innocent meal. So, a fascinating view from the outside. Uh, what, did the, what did he find out about the Christians? And what was it that the Romans came to understand about the Christians? Just simply, that they, were, they would gather together on a stated day. This would be Sunday. We'll see this a little bit later. It's very clear. The Christians met on Sunday. And they met before dark. Why do you think they may have met before dark. I don't know for sure. He doesn't say, but why do you think they may have met before dark? That's exactly it. That's exactly what comes to my mind. They're slaves. You don't just get to go to church on Sunday whenever you want in the Roman Empire. You probably got to get up really early to do this, uh, especially in the earliest days. Um, he finds out that they, from the outside, we hear this, that they worship Christ as a God. And sing. So you have singing, uh, you have singing of hymns to Christ as a God, which was something clearly religious and something that you would only do to a God. And that when they gathered, 
they didn't, he actually found out they didn't do all the terrible things that were said about them. What did they do? They promised, not, they, they promised to follow the teachings of Christ. That's what they promised to do. When they got together, what were they, what were, what were they getting together to do? To tell them, you know, to encourage each other to behave and to, and to do what was right and nothing that would do any harm to the empire. And then that they would come back later for a meal, possibly later in the day, uh, probably not for time's sake necessarily, but when was the Lord's Supper originally? When did the Lord have his supper? It was What part of the day was it? It was in the evening. And so they would come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper, the agape, the love feast, uh, later in the day. Say, so now from the inside, what do the early Christians say about themselves? This is a fascinating letter that comes down to us via epistle of Methodes to Diognetes. And uh, we don't know who either of these two people were. Uh, Methodes just means uh, disciple. So the person who writes this letter just says, I'm a disciple. But what, it's fascinating because he's actually witnessing. He's actually encouraging someone who's inquiring about the faith to join the faith. And he's telling them about the faith, what it is and why it is that they're willing to suffer what they suffer, what it is that they believe. And I would encourage, really, it's like many of these things, it's not very long. It's a letter. Uh, like Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians. And so it doesn't take long to read, nor is it hard to find on the Internet. Uh, but some of the highlights that come down to us from it. The Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor by language, nor the customs which they observe. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners, as citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. So the first thing that we see about the Christians is the Christians can come from anywhere. You don't have to belong to a certain uh, country. You don't have to speak a certain language. Uh, you don't have to reside in a certain country or learn a particular language. In fact, this really was the essence of the very first council that they had in Jerusalem. You don't have to become Jewish. Uh, you don't even have to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. You don't have to learn the Jewish language um, or any of those things. And so he says that they are those who basically, you walk into a country, they're not dressed weird, they don't talk weird, they don't only participate in some hidden things that, you know, they're not like some hidden mystery cults over here off to the side. They're just, in many ways, normal people. Uh, but they endure all things as if they were foreigners. So although they're as plain as anyone else, and as normal as anyone else, they're treated, no matter where you find them, nobody wants them. Nobody wants to claim them as their own. Every foreign land is to them their native country. And every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. This was radical in that day. They, they had a common bond among themselves that was deeper than any national bond that they had. Um, this was actually became the glue that would bind the whole medieval world together was the common faith that was shared among so many different countries. What was it that bound all these people that spoke different languages in different countries together? It was Christianity, because Christianity is not based on what country I come from. And I have more in common 
with my brothers and sisters in other countries than I do with my neighbors who are outside of Christ. And so this wasn't something that caused them to uh, believe one country or one place was more important. They were, there was a brotherhood among all believers and something that actually gave a point of common ground and a point of unity to all people. Uh, having one Savior, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, being one new nation in Christ gave them an identity that allowed them to love people across all boundaries. And yet, whatever city, whatever country, whatever nation they were in, they were treated as if they were foreigners. Um, they were in the world, but not of it. So uh, as to their social habits, they marry and they beget children. So they're not some weird ascetic cult that denies marriage or any of those things, although some of those things sprung up out of Christianity. And they, but although they marry and have children, what's different about them is that they don't kill their offspring because that was really common in the Roman Empire. In fact, we didn't get a chance, or I, I, I missed the chance that I had when we were covering the Didache, but one of the things in the list of sins that it prohibits, a lot of them are just straight out of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, but one of them that stands out glaringly is infanticide and abortion. Christians from the very earliest days were pro-life and anti-war. And this is one of the things that marked them among the Roman Empire was, why would they do this? In fact, they would actually go and collect the children that had been left to exposure um, just to die, which was a very common practice in the Roman Empire. You didn't want a child? Just leave it out in the street. Um, and the Christians would come and take them eventually. And so they have a common table, but not a common bed. They have fellowship. They have table fellowship uh, around the Lord's Supper and fellowship with uh, those of you know, different backgrounds or with one another. But what they don't have is an immoral lifestyle. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass through days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They, are, they obey the prescribed laws, and yet they surpass the laws by their lives. This should be Christians today. That in everything lawful that we find to do, that we're told to do in our country, all lawful things, we should, uh, we should not be accused of theft, murder, adultery, any of the things that are considered and known to be wrong in our country, but surpass that basic standard by our lives. And the Christians did that. They loved all men. They are persecuted by all. They are known and uh, they are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life in their hope of the resurrection. They are poor, and this actually echoes of Paul. Uh, they are poor and yet make many rich. They are a lack of all things and uh, yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. And this was what we saw with Ignatius last week. On his way to his martyrdom, he treats it as if it's a victory march. What was uh, to shame him, what was to dissuade him from the faith, was actually what he gloried in. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is in the body, so are Christians in the world. This was a fascinating insight, fascinating way to put this to me. He looks at the world as full of darkness and death, and he sees the Christians in the world as those who give 
life to the world. Just like our body without the spirit is dead. James says that. And we know that as a scientific fact. <laughs> our spirit leaves, we're dead. The life of the world was the Christians. And actually, some of the early Christian apologists that defended the faith pointed to that. And they said, don't kill the Christians. The Christians are why God is delaying the judgment on the world. So stop killing them. Um, they're what's bringing life and light into society. Stop, the, um, stop killing yourself by killing the Christians. And actually, this is an extended quote, and it's very good. I just didn't have um, space to put any more. And uh, then listen to what he says <clears throat> uh, about the gospel. Jesus himself took on himself the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness. By what other one was it possible that we wicked and ungodly could be justified than the only son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. And I highlight this because this is a clear gospel message. <laughs> Salvation by the grace of God, the righteousness of Christ in exchange of his righteousness and so this is one of the things that's going to be, get obscured a little bit later in church history. This is one of the things that's not going to be as clearly articulated as it should. But in the early days, we see the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that he died for us and in our place, clearly, clearly stated in the very earliest days of Christianity. And then this, by these facts... He desired to lead us to trust in his kindness, to esteem him our nourisher, father, teacher, counselor, healer, wisdom, light, honor, glory, power, and life, so that we should not be anxious concerning clothing and food. And so from the bountiful, generous heart of God, Christians learned to be able to trust him through the trials and the sufferings. And this is one of the things that is strongly emphasized in the early church was this bountiful nature of God. Um, as the, uh, look, listen to how he, the nourisher, the father, teacher, counselor, healer, wisdom, light, honor, glory, power, life. Uh, from God, we receive all of these bountiful gifts that meet our tremendous need. And this is why it is worth it to be a Christian in these days. And then he says this, talking about the Christians. This is the result, and this should challenge us. He who takes upon himself the burden of his neighbor, that's what the Christians are challenged to do, whatsoever things he has received from God, by distributing these to the needy, he becomes a God, little g, God, to those who receive. Um, who receive. He is an imitator of God. And the early church did emphasize this very strongly, the importance of imitating our gracious, merciful, giving, loving, sacrificial God um, and acting that way towards others. The scriptures emphasize this as well. Peter emphasizes it when he talks about Christ dying for us, leaving us an example so that we would follow in his steps. Paul says that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. And that's what they're emphasizing. What we've been given, we are to give. And this set Christians radically 
apart from the world around them. So just a few highlights from that. Um, in these days, when Chris, so many false things were spoken against Christianity, when they were accused of being cannibals um, because of their uh, discussions about the Lord's Supper, you know, they were talking, like, what are you going to go to? Oh, we're going to go receive the body and blood of Christ. You eat it? Yes, we do. <laughs> um, what did people misunderstood that to think that they were actually cannibals. Um, and their love feasts uh, that took place at night. Um, they mistook that for uh, some other things as well. Uh, you can imagine what they mistook it for. Uh, and so in these days, there was a, a need for apologists, someone to stand up and give a defense of the faith. And the apologists of that day were different than the apologists we often have today. They were standing up and they were just saying, not just this is what, just this is why you should believe in Christianity. They did that too. But they were just saying, this is what Christianity actually is. It's not what you heard. It's something different. And these men often spoke to the elite. Uh, they spoke to the wise. They spoke to the philosophers. They spoke to the uh, emperors, actually. And they would speak very boldly uh, in, the, in this time period. One of those that we know about and have uh, a good amount of material from is Justin. Justin Martyr. Justin the Martyr lives from 100 A.D. to about 165 where he meets, uh, meets the Lord in martyrdom. What is it that we know about Justin? Well, he was a Samaritan. He was a, a pagan. He wasn't a Jew. But he was a Samaritan, uh, born in a Samaritan city by birth. He uh, was acquainted with Christianity, but rejected it. He was a philosopher by occupation. He desperately sought to know who God was. And he found it a very frustrating journey. Um, he struggled with the different teachers. Some of the teachers he was looking uh, to find the knowledge of God. This thing his, art, his heart ached for. He struggled because it seemed like some of those who wanted to teach him about it really were more interested in the money that he was supposed to pay them for teaching and uh, wanted him to, one of them wanted to learn music and mathematics and all of those things before he would tell them about the higher things of God. And he was like, no, I want to know about God. And on his journey as a philosopher, as a man who loved Plato, he ran into an older gentleman one day, never was able to find this gentleman again or find out who he was. But this gentleman confronted him on his beliefs about Plato and, um, and his denial of Christianity. And he gave him some really, really good reasons to believe in Christianity. He was a great apologist to the man who had become a great Apologist, and he defended the faith admirably, really caused Justin to think differently about the faith and realize it really it was reasonable. It wasn't what he had heard. And what finally caused Justin to convert and to be baptized and be a Christian was watching Christians die. The intellectual part did have to be solved, and that old gentleman, whoever it was, did help him with that. But what caused him to actually convert to Christianity was watching how Christians suffered and realizing there was no way that these people were the kind of people that they were accused of. And um, I, thought, oh, I had, thought I had the quote in there, but um, <clears throat> I don't. But he basically, in seeing them die and die boldly and faithfully and with peace and with confidence, 
He was like, these are not people who live for wickedness and pleasure. It wouldn't make any sense to give it all up so easily and so boldly. It just doesn't fit. And so he actually ended up becoming a Christian. Um, you see, as far as his teachings go, um, one of the things that Justin emphasized to the Jews uh, and to the um, Romans was how Jesus was the divine word of God, the eternal son of God and the divine word of God. And he was able to match that to both the Roman and uh, Greek philosophies of the logos, the word, the reason of God on the one hand, and the Jewish understanding of the, uh, of the two powers, that there was an eternal person uh, separate from the Father mentioned in the Old Testament. And so he was a noble and able witness to the faith, both to the Romans and to the Jews. The longest work that we have from Justin is a work uh, called The Dialogue with Trypho, a Jew. And he basically goes through, I think it's 142 chapters or something, of a dialogue with, with this Jew. We don't know if it was a fictional character. It's a little bit too perfect um, as far as a discussion. It, it, so it's probably uh, a literary tool. Uh, it may have actually sprung out of an actual conversation he'd had, but it was kind of condensed down and um, smoothed out and was uh, a tool to defend the faith to the Jews. And so he does a great job of going through the Old Testament scriptures and pointing to Christ all through the Old Testament scriptures. And finally, Justin gives his life in 165 uh, or so uh, as a martyr. He's accused by a cynic philosopher um, of Christianity. He stands faithfully and nobly as a Christian and does not deny the faith. And he meets the Lord uh, with grace and glory. So Justin also gives us a window into the early church in an early church service. And you've got it in your notes there. But Justin gives us a little window into what life was like in the early church as far as the meetings. And so he says this, On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. And I like, this is just fascinating to me. This is before you had the scriptures compiled as a book. What'd you call, what would you call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The early term was the memoirs of the apostles. That's what, that's what you called them. And, the, and of course, uh, the prophets. So they would read from the Old Testament, or they would read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, and yeah, I like what it says here, as long as time permits, <laughs> as long as time permits. So they would read and read and read um, because, you know, people didn't have access to the scriptures. The, the people couldn't go home with their Bibles. So they're soaking up all that they could. Uh, and when the reader has ceased, the president, so this is an interesting term, one we don't find often. It's not one that sticks in the early church, but one that he, and of course he's giving his defense to Gentiles. So how are you going to, how are you going to, Name that person, the pastor. Uh, he calls him the president. <clears throat> um, so the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. 
So after we've read the Bible for as long as time allows, the pastor, the president gets up and he exhorts us to do it. He exhorts us to follow the teachings of the apostles. And then we all rise together and we pray. And then when the prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings. And of course, connecting this to the Didache that we've got, it actually we have some of those prayers that would be prayed. It wasn't something that was standardized across all churches, but there is kind of a, a for instance, here, these are some things to pray when you do this. And thanksgivings would be given. The thanksgiving at the end of the taking of the Lord's Supper would be kind of open-ended. And as, according to the ability of the pastor, um, they could, you know, pray on and on. Um, there is a document that says that sometimes it was the Lord's Prayer that was prayed at the giving of the Lord's Supper. And so this, we see, is a central part of the meeting of the church. They've gathered. they have gathered around the word of God, the memoirs of the apostles or the prophets, and they have preached, they've exhorted us to uh, keep the things that have been written, and then the Lord's Supper is brought, and they participate in that together. And of course, they participate, he says, the people assent, saying amen. There's a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been made, um, or thanks have been given, and those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. And so we see that this was such an important thing. If you weren't there, they made sure you got to participate in this. And the deacons, one of their jobs in the early church was to actually both give communion and make sure that the sick or anyone who wasn't able to make it to church that day got communion. <clears throat> and then we find, uh, find this. And those who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit. Sounds very much like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. And what's collected is deposited with the president and, uh, who succors the orphans and the widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want. And so the, how did the church service end? With the offering that was taken up as people were willing and as they were able to take care of those who were in need among them. And this was the life of the early church. This was, this was, these were the main things. They met on Sunday. They read scriptures. There was an exhortation, prayer, communion for those present and at home, and an offering for those who were in need. And so this fascinates me. It encourages me greatly. And uh, watching the lives of these early Christians is challenging. And I want us to consider one other Aspect: How did the gospel go forward in these days? Who were the missionaries? Who were the evangelists? How did the faith spread as far and as fast as it spread? The church, actually, you're exactly right. Listen to what the church historian, Philip Schaff, says. He says, Christianity, once established, was its own best missionary. It grew naturally from within. It attracted people by its very presence. It was a light shining in darkness and illuminating the darkness. So how did Christianity spread? I think we just read, like spent most of our lesson talking about how it spread. It was the life of the people that was both radically different, in some ways radically the same, as everybody else, there was nothing weird about these people. 
They didn't wear different clothes. You couldn't like walk down the street and say, oh, there's those weirdly dressed people. They're, they're, they're the Christians. Um, or there's those people that never show up you know, to this event or that. Like, they're normal people. They wouldn't, they wouldn't go to sinful things like the, the Roman games um, or those type of things. But they, there were many things, most of life, they did together. There was nothing like that that separated them. But their life was so radically different that it stood out, and it drew people to it. He also goes on to say, and while there were not professional missionaries devoting their whole life to this specific work, every congregation, like Tony just said, was a missionary society. Every Christian believer, a missionary inflamed by the love of Christ to convert his fellow man. He goes on to talk about the fact that one of the things Christians were reproached for was the fact that it was the common in most ordinary people that were the cause of the spread of the gospel. It wasn't the super educated. It wasn't really the, mainly the people like Justin that we've just read about. It wasn't those guys. It was, uh, I forget exactly the lines of work that he mentions, but uh, Celsus, actually the guy who had um, Justin killed, he reproaches the Christians because it was the leather workers, the shoemakers, and the simple people that took it to the kids and the wives and the slaves in the society. It's just all these people down here. It wasn't the importance. It wasn't the noble men. It wasn't the emperors. It wasn't the philosophers. It was the simple people who were willing to take it to families and homes where it spread like wildfire among the homes and among the people. So among us, who's most qualified to be a Christian evangelist? <laughs> Those who actually live it best. Those who live it best. Not those who have the most knowledge, the most apologetic, the best apologetic arguments. Those whose lives are most full of Christ. And it could be, and I think often is in churches, I think it often is the case, that sometimes the most effective evangelism that's done and the most effective evangelists there are in the church aren't the professionals. It's, it's you guys. It's, it's the people. It's the people who look, look different at work, who talk different at work, who do different things, who have different priorities uh, at work, who serve some weird things that you won't go do along with a very normal life that you do live. You know, how are you so normal on the one hand and so weird on the other? Um, it's those kind of things that represent Christ well. And that's how the gospel spread. And it spread in the midst of persecution. It spread in the midst of people saying, you know, trying, trying to stop us from believing this. And it was the life of the martyrs that saved Justin. It wasn't the philosophies. It was how they died. It's how they lived, and it was how they died. It wasn't just how they taught. And so I hope that is a challenge to us, um, that we might be, as the early church was, faithful witnesses to Christ in our generation. I would ask us, 
Are we imitating Christ the way they labored to imitate Christ? We have way more tools at our disposal when we study theology. We have way more church history to pull from. We have way more as far as resources and as far as knowledge. But do we have the imitation that they had? Do we have the imitation that they had? And I would say if we want to see the gospel spread across our country, and we want to see revival break out in our world, it's been said many times, but it does start with us. And it starts with the basics. The basics, the simple stuff, the stuff you all know, the stuff I know. Not the stuff you don't know. It starts with the stuff you do know. So may the Lord help us to be, as a church, more like that in a more effective missionary society.